As you're finding your seat, if you would, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word, your copy of the Bible, and turn with me to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. If you're our guest, we're so glad you're here with us this morning. We've, we've been uh, a few weeks now into a study at the, the letter of Paul to the churches of Galatia. And we are still in the first chapter, and as Ronnie mentioned, we're going to do our best to finish the chapter today, uh, working from verse 11 on down through the chapter. And I think the, the prayer, the way that Ronnie prayed us now, even fits with the theme of the text, and that is that we need God's help in this. We, this is something God must do uh, if we're going to grow, if we're going to even know him, it will be his work. So I'm going to read for us from uh, Galatians 1, chapter 11. You follow along in your copy of God's word. If you don't have a Bible, just scoot real close to somebody who does. Introduce yourself after we're done. All right. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I... For the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. So thankful for this text that we have before us this morning. It just reminds me of the power of God that we both need and that he supplies. A few years ago, there was a 67-year-old uh, sister, a woman who, who was having trouble seeing. She had had an irritated eye. It was kind of dry. It, she, she had difficulty seeing through it. She assumed that she was getting cataracts, that, it, that that was part of the problem that she was facing. And so she went to see a doctor, and they did some preliminary looks, but they decided that it's probably best to go ahead and, and go to surgery uh, to begin to deal with some of what uh, she was dealing with. And as the doctors began to work on the affected area, uh, to their surprise, uh, she did not have cataracts or some other condition. In fact, she had contacts, lots of them. She was aware of disposable contact lenses for many, many, many years. And evidently, she thought that she kept losing them. 
And so she put in another one to fix the problem. And she kept putting them in until this doctor who decided to do surgery on her and then pulled that eyelid back realized she had 27 contacts in one eye. I imagine it'd be hard to see with 27 contacts in one eye. I think maybe it seemed to her that as her vision got worse, that she just had to do something else to try to fix it. So as she, as she kind of, things got bad, she just reached for another contact and put that in and see if that one would fix it. Maybe later, you know, she'd put another one in and see if that one would fix it. She just kept adding something else to it, hoping that that would solve the problem. But she did not need to add anything else to solve that particular situation. She needed a doctor to help her see that she uh, needed to get rid of some things to make it right. And I think so many times in our lives, we think that if we would just add something else, this is 2023, so if I just add a new routine, if I just add a little bit more this or a little bit more that or a lot more of this or a lot more of that, that, that we'll finally fix our hearts if we just add something else. But what we need is to see the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly, see that it is our only hope. There is no other way to God, and we cannot add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't need to. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to rescue anyone, anybody in this room, anyone, anywhere, could be rescued by the power of the gospel. This morning we're going to see a picture, an illustration, a display of God's power in the life of the Apostle Paul. So this is one of the sections that Paul gets autobiographical for a good deal of time. He sort of breaks into talking about himself, not just to talk about himself, but to explain what God has done through his own personal account. He begins to tell his testimony, if you will. And this particular section lasts from chapter 1, verse 11, on through into chapter 2, maybe all the way down to verse 21, where he is explaining to his hearers in Galatia uh, that he has eyewitness testimony about the power of God to change a life. Even within the larger unit of 111 through 221, there are really three sections, and today we're just doing one of them. There are a couple more to come where Paul begins to discuss what's going on. And we're going we're gonna to see even after we look here with his first encounters with the church leaders in Jerusalem and his own turning to the Lord, uh, that n- then next week we, we, might, we will look together and see that there's a, a meeting between Paul and the Jerusalem leaders and the, a discussion of his work as a, a minister of the gospel in the region. And then even after that, there's going to be a confrontation between Paul and Peter um, at Antioch that's going to lead to a declaration about justification by faith alone. So he spends a good deal of time on this account. Why? One reason is that if you remember from our last couple of weeks, Paul is dealing with, he's, he's, he was a, a church planner that came through and right behind him, a whole bunch of false teachers came in and they were adding to the gospel. They were adding circumcision and Jewish law to the gospel and saying, if you are really a Christian, then you must practice these things to be saved. These are things that must accompany a true faith 
in Christ. And those false teachers also misrepresented Paul, it seems, by his reaction and sort of painted him as a Johnny-come-lately who's got his own version of the gospel. But it's a little watery, so you don't want to trust it because you really need to do some things to make yourself right with God. Paul's sort of weak sauce when it comes to the gospel in the mouths of these particular false teachers. And I will tell you, as we go through Galatians, you will see Paul is no weak sauce when it comes to how to handle the gospel and what is true. They were arguing that, that Paul really was the one with the novel gospel because it wasn't Jewish enough. And Paul knew that it was going to be critical for him to establish the truth about who he was and what God had already done in order for them to understand the truth of the message that he was going to give them. You know the credibility of a communicator is important. The credibility of somebody claiming something is important. We see that all the time in politics. We see it on television. We see it in churches. You see it in your home. The credibility of the communicator is absolutely important. And Paul's credibility is being questioned by these false teachers. We may even as we begin this morning, as we think about that credibility question, you might begin to examine your own life. People are watching you every day. And you're saying things. You're saying things by what, where your browser goes. You're saying things by what your phone says and does. And people are watching. You, you may not think about this much, but there are people who work at those companies. There are people who work at those companies and who, who see what you do when you think nobody's watching. And you're saying something about what you believe all the time. We're saying it all the time. It's not just then. In this room, little people are watching you. All of you. Little people are just sitting there with wonder. Like I, These older people seem to love Jesus. They sing real loud. But they won't just watch you in here. They'll watch you when you leave. And they'll just keep watching. And your credibility is going to speak to the credibility of the very message that you proclaim. And Paul knows that that's true. So when these false teachers come in saying, man, you can't trust Paul. He knows he's got to deal with that particular question before he can go any further. So Paul's going to deal a little bit with his, with his own story. And one of the things that he's doing is trying to show to the Galatians and to us that we can trust what Paul is saying. In our text, Paul's going to use his personal testimony uh, to, to show the reliability of the gospel. And he's also going to point out three things that I want to focus in on. One is the authority of the gospel. That's there in the very beginning. Um, so the, the gospel that Paul is preaching, the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ, he wants to show the authority of it in verses 11 and 12. Then we're going to see the power of it in verses 13 through 17 as Paul describes what the gospel, what Jesus did to him. And then also we will look to see the legitimacy of the very gospel that Paul preached. Well, let's look together at verses 11 and 12. We're just going to kind of work our way through this particular text and see together the authority of the gospel. To connect in your Bibles always, the context is king uh, as you study your Bible. So you don't, we, we each week pick up at the place we left off. But always in the middle of a discussion that's already going on. So it's always important to kind of get your bearings as you come back in. And if you remember verse 10, as we left off last week, Paul told them, Am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please, or if I were, yeah, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God. For I would have you know, brothers, 
that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. Paul wants to start the discussion by saying this is not a message that I just made up because I thought people would like me better if I said it. This is not something that I'm doing in order to earn a hearing or esteem from other people. I'm not just trying to draw a crowd. In fact, God is the source of the message that I'm speaking. He's the author of it and the source of it. So I don't, I don't have any options about pleasing men. It's God's message. I'm just delivering that message. Paul wants to explain that he even, how he even came to hear and believe and preach this gospel. So he's going to transition into a personal story. He's giving the source and authority behind his message and his apostleship. Verse 11 said, I would have you know, brothers. And Paul's responding to that accusation from the, uh, the, 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 the false teachers. And it's sort of like he's saying when he says, I would have you know that I need to make something absolutely clear to you. <laughs> if we're going to have this discussion, you, you need to understand. I, I need to be clear. I would have you know. Paul does that exact phrase in other epistles. It's kind of a good, fun little crossword. If you get bored this morning, just go look up. All the, all the places in the epistles that Paul uses the phrase, I would have you know. It's a, it's a popular of his in Romans, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, and in Ephesians. He, he stops to say, listen, this is important. You need to hear me on this. Not that everything else isn't important, but listen up carefully. And Paul's dealing with a serious topic. Sometimes in a conversation with a child, <laughs> you may come to the point where, where you have to stop, get down on their level... Take their little, hand, their little face in your hands and go, I need you to listen to me, right? Because sometimes we'll have a discussion with a kid and they, they've, got a, they've got a yeah, but for everything that gets said. And sometimes we need to get right down in their face and clarify as, as an adult or as a parent, as somebody who loves them, listen, listen you need to hear me. What, I, what I'm saying to you matters, and that sobriety is communicated through that kind of message. And Paul is doing that to you right now. He's grabbing your face in his hands and saying, listen, listen, I have to tell you something that is very important. And he's going to speak about the gospel and the power of the gospel. And that is so important. It's so very serious. But even as he starts this serious discussion, he's still calling them brothers. You remember we noted that at the beginning of the, of the book? He calls them brothers again right here. Even after he gets very stern with them in last week's message, he's still treating them as those who are brothers. I think I counted he's going to say that seven more times before this book is over. And so that'll make a total of nine times that he calls them brothers. He's reaching out to them in love. Well, he notes uh, to the, the brothers, look, the gospel that I received, it wasn't made up by men it wasn't given to be my men. This is not man's gospel. That's not what this is. So in that charge of messing with the gospel that's being laid out, that's not what Paul did. Well, what did he do? Verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's contrasting the way that he received the gospel from the way that normal rabbis and Jewish teachers would be taught, right? 
So if you were going to go to rabbinical training, you would be taught what uh, your teacher said, and he would teach you what other teachers said, who would teach you what other teachers said. And so you'd have traditions that would roll down. And as an expert, you would be an expert in, in one specific tradition, but you would be aware of all of the traditions. And you'd be able to point out, well, this man said this about that, and this man said this about that, and this man said this about that. And so Paul, who's been trained in that particular skill, looks up at these people who are saying, now, he, he didn't have the right gospel. He looks right at him and says, I did not get my gospel that way. This is not a hearsay gospel. Jesus himself came to me, blinded me and opened my eyes, all in the same, uh, in, in the same span of time. Paul is actually communicating that he did not receive this by tradition, but that he has an authoritative experience. We can say that of Paul in a way we can't say that in the same way of ourselves. But Paul had a first-hand encounter with Jesus that gave him a direct, unmediated message from the mouth of Jesus himself. So he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as he's communicating that, Paul is actually trying to tell the churches that while I'm connected to the doctrine of the church, I don't have a novel gospel. I'm not teaching something other than what Peter and James are teaching. Um, but I, I, I am not the heir of them. Jesus himself is the authority behind this gospel. He's the one who both authorizes it and sends me out to speak it. Paul is speaking because Jesus said to. And there's no other message that has that authority. Only the biblical gospel, true biblical gospel, has the power and authority to save and to direct our lives. I think Paul is dealing with questions about whether or not he's trustworthy. And his answer to, to that is to remind his hearers that the gospel is not one that men made up, but God said it. God spoke it. I think I was helped by John Bunyan's thought here. He said, a little from God is better than a great deal from men. What, what is from men is often tumbled over. Things that we receive at God's hand come to us as things from the minting house, fresh off the press. Old truths are always new to us if they come with the smell of heaven upon them. We want to hear from the Lord. How are you going to hear from the Lord? Well, I hope you know you're going to hear from Him in His Word. That is where you are going to go and see the very words that God intends to speak to you about your life and about your needs and that is the only place God has preserved in His Word both His saving gospel and the wisdom that we need to live our lives. So while we might want to be inventive and creative and we might uh, in our day find lots of time to, to think of all new ways and novel ways to think about life, I think most Christians want someone to say, tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his blood. Point me back there. Get me back to what I know is true because it's not just somebody's idea. It's what I actually need according to God. 
So I wonder when you're in a crisis, when you need to know what to believe and what to think, this week when you run up against things where you say, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How, how do I think about this? Go to God's authoritative word. Go to God's authoritative word. Paul wasn't relying on his own best ideas. He wasn't relying on the ideas of men. He wasn't presenting a gospel that was thought up and enhanced by man's ideas. He was just saying what God said is true. Do you want to know how to be saved or how to live your life? See what God says is true. You're only going to find that in God's authoritative witness, which is the Bible itself. God's spoken and revealed will. For the Lord has granted his authority to only one book. That is the Bible. We need that for our lives. Which means, this is more to Paul's point, that God is the only author of salvation. So there's no creative way to get to God. There, there's not a bunch of ways. There's no, no name under heaven except Christ by which we must be saved. He is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him. He has actually declared there is a way to get to him. And he had no need to do that, but he did it out of sheer mercy and grace. There is a way to be made right with God, but it is only in Christ. There's no one else with the authority to save. No other message will save us. So what does that mean? It means there's no moral message that's going to save you. Be good and make God happy. It's a really bad plan. That, that is not where you want to bank your hopes. Because if you think you can do that, you don't know how bad you really are. And friends, I just, I, I, I want to love you enough to say, as highly as you actually think of yourself, you know, you know that you have not for one single day of your life loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nor have you ever Loved your neighbor even the way you love yourself. So if you're going to stand before God and hope for salvation, you need more than be good because you can't really do that. He's got to tell you how to get to him. How can you? He's got to come for you and rescue you through Christ. He has made a way. Only his way of salvation will hold true. So even as we live our lives, we want to see that there's only one saving gospel. It's only the authoritative gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other saving message. There's nothing with the authority to do that. Well, look at the next section there in, uh, in 13 through 17. It's a little longer part, but we see the power of the gospel on display as Paul tells his own story. For you have heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And he goes on from there explaining that he was, he was so zealous for these traditions. And he had, he had really banked everything on his confidence in the old ways. And then there's this amazing switch at verse 15 where everything changes. And right in there, if it's not in your little cross-reference section in your Bible, if you need a little parenthetical reminder, if you'll go to the book of Acts chapter 9, you're going to see the conversion story of the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul. Uh, so if you, go, if you even back up to 8 and even a little bit in 7, you'll see the kind of lead up of his old ways, and then you'll see him, the Lord, miraculously rescue him. And he'll retell that story later on, even as he stands before authorities. 
um, in the book of Acts. So you'll see him recount this, this particular account. But this, this particular section, we see the power of the gospel to save as Paul tells his own conversion story. And there in verses 13 and 14, Paul is, is reminding his hearers, because he's been a Christian for a long time at this point, so maybe 15, 16, 17 years, somewhere in there. He, he's been a Christian and his name is now known. He was the one who planted the church in Galatia. And so when he's writing to them, he's sort of being autobiographical, like, guys, I was not always this guy. I was a whole different guy. And you, some of you may have heard my stories. Others may, may not know all about my past life, but you need to know who I was. And so Paul is telling them that he, was, he wasn't just like ethnically Jewish. He wasn't just a, a, a fan of a particular culture. Um, or even trained in the teachings of his, his previous faith, he calls himself zealous, like a zealot, like, like someone who is all in to the point of there's nothing left, nothing held back. And oh, that we were zealous for the Lord like he was for uh, the old ways. He was a zealot. I, I thought of the examples of like a, like a terrorist or like the secret police. He was willing to harm others in the hopes of protecting his particular line of thinking. When he was Saul, he was not just trying to get the Christians to simmer down. He was going around violently persecuting them, house to house, grabbing them out of their homes, pulling them out, tying them up, the texts tell us. He was committed to getting rid of this thing that seemed to him to be corrupting Judaism. And then something happened. Saul changed. He didn't go to seminar. He, he, didn't, he didn't have a friend uh, show up and, and talk him through something. Something dramatic happened in Acts chapter 9. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus along with other men who were there with him with a light so bright that it physically knocked people to the ground. It's hard for me to understand what that means, but it says they all were knocked to the ground by this light. And an audible voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it was the voice of Jesus himself. And at the command of Christ, Saul becomes Paul, is converted immediately. He is brought from death to life, and his whole life changed in that moment and going forward. Everything that he once loved, a 180 happens. He turns his back on it. The very people he was seeking to kill and destroy, he seeks to bless and serve. Something did change in Paul. He was radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. His ancestry, his training, his, his public place, being known as somebody who was good at his job, the goals for his whole life, all the deepest convictions of his heart changed. He embraced and even began to spread the very message he had sought to destroy. 
John MacArthur said he had been like a runaway freight train that crushes everything in its path. He had lost control of his life and was without restraint. His legalistic zeal had put him on a headlong course of destruction from which no natural force short of death could have deterred him. And then he says, well, his apostolic calling could only have been supernatural and sovereign completely apart from human testimony or persuasion. So when Saul becomes Paul, turns his back on the past, who gets the credit? God gets the credit. Jesus gets the credit. God's authoritative word came with power to Paul. And look what he says in verse 15. He says it right there. He's sort of summarizing his conversion by saying, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. And listen, he's already testifying to the depth of theology that we know Paul has. Uh, he, he, he says there, there's something that is so complete, such a complete rescue, only God could do it. It gets outside of my ability to describe it. It precedes any action or thought even I had when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Oh, friends, see, God set his grace on Paul, on Saul, and he has set his grace on any who would believe so that we can say that, that like Lazarus couldn't get himself up and get Jesus to raise him up from the dead, Paul couldn't do that either. On that horse, he was a dead man with a stone heart. And the call of Jesus called him to life. And he came out of his grave. He called me by his grace. And that one was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he says, I did not immediately consult anyone. And so going back to Paul's point with particularly the false teachers, Paul wants everybody to know, listen, I had this, this experience, this particular interaction that's historic and documentable. It is objective. It's not just my feelings. It's an objective moment in history when Jesus revealed himself to me. And when that happened, everything changed so that everything changed for me forever. And the gospel that I now preach was given to me by Jesus. I think it's important to note here. You do know that Christianity is not just a moral code. Do you know that? It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. I hope you know that. I hope that doesn't subtly work its way back into your thinking. I think the flesh always wants something to do whether good or ill. I think even Christians can fall into the idea that if I just do good, that's a basis for God's happiness with me. Christianity is more than a, a set of moral precepts. It's not, it's not some mystical way to know God. That's not what Christianity is. It's not a philosophy of life. It's not what it is. At its core, Christianity is the record the record of what God has done once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ, the work of his son on the cross. It's the glad proclamation of a historic objective reality that God himself entered history and made a way for sinners to be made right with him. And that he's accomplished it in the death, burial, and literal resurrection of his son. 
All of that history is declared in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul notes that he was set apart for a purpose. And he, he, he makes it clear in verse 16 that he's been set apart because Paul, God wanted Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, we can go past that and move on, not to, we won't stay there long, but just consider with me, if this man had committed his whole life, upbringing, and training to purifying the nation of Israel, then for him to become gladheartedly the apostle to the Gentiles itself represents an enormous shift in his way of thinking. Because to the pure Jew, the idea of an outsider was that they really were less than. And not just less than, but dirty. And so for now, his whole life to be marked by sharing the gospel of grace through Jesus with people that he once assumed were the lowest of the low. And now he gladly goes and shares with them the words of life. That kind of change is powerful. We see that in the power of the gospel. And I think God actually, as he saves us, has purposes for us. You see Paul being set apart to, to preach to uh, the Gentiles. And I just remind you that if you are still living, that evidently the Lord still has things to do with you <laughs> while you're here. There's kind of a mentality among some of us at times that just thinks, well, I'm just sort of waiting on Jesus to get back. I don't know what y'all want to do. But remember, the Lord has left. He put you here in 2023 for a reason. He's not rolling dice in heaven. He wants you here. Here. You. And if he has redeemed you, he's redeemed you to show his glory here and now. In this culture at this time. So friends, understand that as Paul was set apart, we may not be able to identify ourselves as the apostle to the Gentiles. Don't do that. Don't call yourself an apostle. That's what I mean. That's, that is, that, that's, that's not, that's not um, yeah. Don't do that. But at the same time, recognize that God has specific purposes that he has for you in this world. You are not a cosmic accident with a punched ticket to get to heaven. You were intended by God for such a time as this for his glory. So Paul goes on to discuss that he, that he goes to Damascus right afterwards. But he's not going really to, to become a junior apostle or enter any kind of ministry mentorship program. Because we already said that Paul's had the Jesus in person full encounter with God. So he's not going to get certified or accredited. Um, so it, it, is, it, is, uh, it is Paul saying, as we, as we move through verse 16, that he's, he has gone there to Damascus. And then he says in, in uh, let's see, he says in verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. Paul didn't need to get credentials from Jerusalem, which was the main teaching church in that particular day. In fact, after getting to Damascus, instead of going for some training program in Jerusalem, we see him do something that's really interesting. He goes away into Arabia. And Paul tells us that he's taking a short trip there. And he tells us no more about this that I'm aware of in the scriptures why he went. And so whenever you run into a mystery like that, scholars all have opinions, right? They all want to explain to you, well, 
You know what he was doing. He, was, he had to go to, to spend some time with the Lord and sort of reckon his idea of what a Gentile was. Or he had to go and, and get a particular thought or re, redo his ideas. He really just went to pray. Or, he re, or some would suggest Paul went to begin preaching to the Gentiles. He went into Arabia because there were unbelieving non-Jewish people there that he wanted to begin his work of pressing into preaching the gospel in like pre-mission work. Well, that's all interesting. It's also not in the text. So, I mean, feel free to have an opinion, but don't hold it like it's the Bible because you don't know. None of us actually are sure what Paul exactly did. Spurgeon, who's never short of opinions, um, said, what he did here we do not know, but probably he had a time of quiet meditation and prayer. All alone, he says, I went into Arabia, which implies kind of solitude. And then Spurgeon says, the best we can do sometimes, and this is a good application from a guess, the best thing we can do sometimes is to get away from the voices of men to listen to the voice of God. Well, either way, Paul heads for a season in Arabia and then he goes back to Damascus for a lengthy season where God establishes Paul to the degree. So there's, there's all kind of timetables time going on here where we see uh, Paul speaking of what happens to be seasons, lengthy seasons of time, even years, where God establishes Paul to the degree that the church leaders uh, we're going to see, see God's call on Paul's life. I mean, think again about the radical change in Paul's life that has happened. We went from thinking of Saul the destroyer, basically, over against Paul, the gospel-besotted church planner. How does something like that happen? Well, J.C. Ryle, I think, helps. There are no incurable cases under the gospel. Any sinner may be healed if you will only come to Christ. Friends, at this point in the message, I want to put a truth that I hope will just stay in your heart. One of the catechism questions that our church or our family has used for years, it's from a children's catechism book that's the one that I find the easiest to remember. There's a question that says, who can change a sinner's heart? And the answer is the Holy Spirit alone. If you will log that piece of Bible truth in your mind, it's drawn from Scripture, the Holy Spirit changes hearts. I can't change anyone. My mere words can't do anything. Only the Holy Spirit. But not just only the Holy Spirit. i got to recognize that the Holy Spirit has the power to change any sinner's heart. Oh, friends, listen. So many in this room right now have, have unbelieving family members who you have spoken to for years, for decades, and your heart's grown tired and you keep thinking, God, would you please save him or her? Would you please rescue them? I, I want to speak words that could be used by you, but would you rescue them? Don't give up hope. Because in the same way that God can turn a terrorist like Paul into a gospel-besotted church planter. God can rescue anyone. There is no one beyond the pale of God's ability to save. That ought, that ought give us an impetus for prayer, courage in prayer, that we are not going to a God whose arm is so weak he can do nothing, but that we are going to a God who can save. And has been pleased to save over and over. The story of so many of us in this room is one where we think, well, I've not got that kind of Saul testimony where I was like the rebel trying to kill people. 
I was a stinker in a Christian house, right? Like, I, I was a pretty good kid for the most part, uh, but, but I didn't have that life where I was the wild rebel running free. But can you recognize that it took the same power to make your dead heart alive that it takes to make any dead heart alive? There are no halfway saved people running around the room that Jesus has to finally get them across the finish line. That's not how that works. There are dry bones and stone hearts. And the Spirit of God must bring new birth. And in grace, He must rescue us so that we awaken to our deadness and say, I need you. And then turn and repent and believe the gospel. But it's all of Him. It is all of grace. There's no half-saved person here. You are either in Christ or in Adam. There are two positions in this world. And you need to know where you are. So my, my plea to you this morning is to see the power of the gospel. See the power of the gospel. Both to save those around you and that it is the power that saved you yourself. Then finally, these last few verses, verses 18 through 24. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. You know that's, Paul, that's Peter. Uh, when, when we read Cephas, that's the, the, the other name for Peter. And remained with him for 15 days. So he did spend, it turns out, a couple of weeks in Jerusalem with Peter. He didn't see a bunch of the other apostles, except if you count James, the, Lord bro, the Lord's brother there. And then he, he makes that bold declaration, in what I am writing you, before God, I do not lie. And then he says, after that particular trip, I went on into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And the Christians there, they didn't even know me. All through the, the Judean churches, they didn't know who I was. But they did know there's this guy who used to be trying to kill Christians, who now is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And that testimony of God's power stood to legitimize Paul's witness even before people he was trying to kill before. And so they themselves glorified God for what Paul had had, had happen. So there's, there's a window of time where we see that Paul is, is trying to explain to everyone that, I, look, the gospel I have is not a gospel I made up. Nor is it a gospel that I got from a bunch of other people. I know all those people. I've been to see all those people, but that's not where I got my gospel from. Verse 20 in our text right now, the Amplified Bible uh, says about that, what I'm writing to you before God, it is not a lie. This is how the Amplified said it. Now, note carefully what I am, what I am telling you, for it is the truth. And I write as if I were standing before the bar of God. I am not lying. So Paul's critics are saying, look, he doesn't have the right gospel. He just got that from someone else. And Paul's going out of his way to pour his life out in front of them and say, no, that is not true. Before God, as my witness, I am telling you, God did something in my heart. I saw Jesus with these eyes. He gave me a message, put it in my mouth, and told me to preach it. And the gospel you heard, Galatia, from me is that gospel. I didn't make this up. So after that visit to Jerusalem, he takes that gospel and goes to begin sharing it with others and think about the kind of testimony. Can you imagine if we announced this week, hey, a guy who used to try to kill Christians is coming Wednesday night. Y'all meet us down here. Like, this is his full-time job. He was, he was trying to kill us. But we're, we're going to meet here and he's going to speak to us on Wednesday night. There'd be questions, right? Everybody's like, meh. Are we going to stream that? Because I think that's how I'm going to watch that particular. <laughs> I don't know about that. But just think, 
They know that there's this guy who's tried to kill people, and now he's out proclaiming the very message he was trying to destroy. He's not just not trying to kill people anymore. He's embraced it. He wants to see it flourish. He wants to proclaim it so that others will embrace it. And that testimony causes Christians everywhere in that region and even Christians in this room today to say thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he rescues people. There's only one gospel and only God can actually do what the gospel promises. And the glorious thing is that that's exactly what he does. Herman Ritterboss uh, makes a point on this particular section. He says, the final thought, namely, that these churches glorified God in Paul, incidentally suggests that these churches did not doubt the genuineness and integrity of Paul's calling and preaching, and that, if you please, from those who had suffered so much on his account, how different the attitude in the churches of Galatia then. So here, Paul is telling them, look, I used, to, I used to be the guy who terrorized those churches. And then I, when I showed up, they were praising God. And he's saying it to the very people who are saying, are you really an apostle? The very people who are questioning his message. And here are these others who he used to, he used to try to seek to destroy. And they are praising God for Paul's work. I think the true gospel that, that Paul taught is on display throughout the story of his redemption it's the good news that, that everyone who will turn to Christ can be rescued and redeemed. Anyone here today who turned could be rescued. God has made a way for any one of us to have peace through Christ. That's the only legitimate message. It's the only powerful message. It's the only authoritative message message. Paul's life shows that the gospel is a trustworthy declaration. Well, in conclusion, I think Paul's life shows us together an amazing picture of the power and the authority and legitimacy of the gospel. But we need to be reminded, even this morning, what I said just a few moments ago. Do you remember the movie Princess Bride? There's that scene where Miracle Max says he's not dead, he's just mostly dead. Right? There's no mostly dead people. They're either those who are dead in their sins and trespasses or those who've been made alive in Christ. And apart from turning to Christ, apart from turning to Christ, without turning to Christ, everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins. There's no credit or goodness given to us for being raised right. We all need the same rescue that Saul of Tarsus needed. So we praise God for that rescue. That it's not just that we need it and he's declared it, but that he's made it available and that it's effective and that it does redeem. So that awesome power is on display in the gospel today. So that if you sit here even now, still under the weight of your sin, I would call you run to Christ. Run to Christ today. He can save. And so I remind us all, that that same gospel that has rescued us is also the gospel that will transform us into the image of his son. So let's pray together as we close our time.
Almighty God, you alone have the authority and the power to save. And your gospel of Jesus Christ is the only legitimate message of salvation. And Father, we see our great need this morning. Would you restore to us a sense of wonder and awe and deep gratitude for the rescue that you have made through Christ? For every blood-bought saint in this room, would you make it more than words that we praise you for our salvation? God, would you cause us to praise you from the heart that we could do nothing to save ourselves and you have rescued us through your son. And Father, I ask even now, would you redeem more? Oh God, don't stop. Don't stop. Or we pray that there would be any of those who, who are trusting their own power or their own goodness to save themselves, that you would crush those idols and those lies and that you would free them from trying to save themselves, that failing effort, and that you would rescue them through Christ. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.